Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. <laughs> Funny, when I started this conversation with Carol Gorlick, the song Rubber Ball Comes Bouncing Back to Me came into my head, and you'll hear that. Uh, it's sort of an odd feeling, but it was true that when you meet someone like Carol, who's fascinating and has a lot of interest in the same things I do, particularly Peter Vale and learning and practice, you you want to stay in touch. And episode 59 of this series was the first time that we became somewhat more acquainted and after that became colleagues and friends. So here is a, a focus with Carol on some very interesting, from my standpoint, rare kind of work that she's doing as an ethnographer with a very, very good access to cohorts of doctoral students who are learning organization development and change in a, in a way that's quite special. So you'll hear about that. Here is Carol Gorlick. Well, folks, I think you know by now that uh, I'm like that uh, song, Rubber Ball, I'll Come Bouncing Back to You. <laughs> I don't know if some of you are much too young to know that song, but uh, I'm bouncing back to uh, now a very good friend, Carol Gorlick, who was one of my earlier <laughs> podcast guests uh, quite, quite a while ago now, Carol. But in the meantime, she and I meet regularly uh, working on a chapter for, uh, for a, a book that she uh, she continually edits it's an, it's an ever-growing book and uh a lot of other things but one thing that um among many that has caught my interest in having this conversation carol is that you have a unique vantage point on a doctoral program of students studying organization development and change as an eth an ethnographer boy ooh, <laughs> An ethnographer. I, I don't even think I'll edit that out because I think people should understand it, that that's such a, a word that we don't speak so often that it doesn't trip right off the tongue. Uh, but uh, could you tell us a little bit about how that idea of coming into an ethnography role with that graduate program uh, started and a little bit about what you're learning so far? Well, I think, David, this is a wonderful opportunity to um, experience one of my favorite quotes. How do I know what I think till I see what I say? Because nobody's <laughs> ever asked me that question before. <laughs> I, I think it goes back to basically my learning style and who I am, that I learn best when I'm in whatever I'm trying to learn. And isn't that directly related to what you're all about with practice? And Absolutely. I think that's what's brought us together, mm -hmm. that we really believe in practice. And when I went as a 25-year corporate good citizen in IT roles back to um, a doctoral program so that I could teach um, MBAs who were basically practitioners mm -hmm. about what was going on in the real world, I tripped across ethnography and 
realized that that was the research method that I was most intrigued by. And it really was originally when people went into places and experienced the culture. Um, Street Corner Society was the first one where a Harvard dissertation student went and lived in Italian or, or Irish culture. Oh, I'd and love to do that. <laughs> I was just really intrigued. So oh, yeah. I've been exploring that in everything I've done ever since. When I got the opportunity to hear about a brand new doctoral program that was going to be launched as a cohort program for experienced practitioners to add scholarly capabilities. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, that's what I did. And I am a very rare person who did both their MBA and their doctorate in cohort programs. Mm -hmm. And I believe deeply that that's the way people learn, not as an individual person going through the traditional doctorate with a chair and a professor. Right. A very lonely existence, I think, by the way, from, from my observations and a little bit of my experience, but I agree with you. So most of the academics I admire say that this is a good idea, but very few people have actually experienced it. Mm -hmm. So when Steve Cady and I met over After Action Reviews, um, which is one of my collaborative processes, mm -hmm. um, and he told me what he was doing, I was incredibly intrigued. So I actually began to talk to him and follow how he was going about the program before it was actually approved. Wow, that's right in on the ground floor then. Right? And so the mine floor, if you will. <laughs> right. So that was really exciting. And after it was approved, there was an overarching question in my mind that this was about collaboration, but there couldn't be a program without some structures. Mm -hmm. So it fit with my research agenda. My question was, what are the minimal conditions or structures that need to be in place for a group of people coming together who have nothing in common other than they're in this program to become a true learning community? Right. And I don't think we spoke of it in that much specificity. But the reality was that Steve's design included onboarding people before the program ever started. Mm -hmm. And so there were three monthly onboarding meetings of people who had been accepted before the program ever began in September. Nice, so nice. I believe it was May, June, and July, or maybe June, July, and August. And so people came to the very first residency already knowing about the program and a little bit about each other. Yeah. And 
I have followed this cohort one since May or June of 2019 through today. The first two residencies were face to face mm -hmm. and then COVID came. Mm -hmm. And since then, um, they've been virtual. We had a face to face residency recently when they are already in the dissertation phase. Wow. In the beginning, when it was only cohort one, we had a full cohort optional meeting every Wednesday at noon Eastern time. And the following year, cohort two met on the second Tuesday, uh, second Wednesday of the month. And the next year, the third cohort met on the third Wednesday of the month. And he has now instituted symposia with thought leaders and people in the field on the fourth Wednesday of every month. And that can so, bring all, all groups together. Then. All groups together. Mm. So that's an example of a structure that leads to learning communities. And that's my life's work. Bowling Green State University in Ohio, not Bowling Green, Kentucky. And it's a, I mean, I've become very acquainted with it because of Steve Cady's uh, development with you and with Theo Stiegler, uh, Ford Stiegler of my library. So I, that got me in there. But I've been working in schools like Bowling Green for a good part of my career. And uh, I, I'm, I love the fact that they have great graduate programs, this new doctoral program, but also uh, it's, it's not in quotes, and I'm not putting the school down, but it's not one of those prestige names. You know, I went to Cornell for my doctor. These are folks who uh, I think fit the culture. I'm guessing fit the culture of the school. I mean, it's, it's Ohio. It's working. It's, it's a working place. It's a, uh, they're there. In other words, I'm missing saying they're not there for a token degree. They're there because they want to accomplish change in their lives to the extent that when they return to practice with that uh, degree, they'll know that they've enhanced their capabilities and they'll know a lot of people now because of the cohort and the intermingling you're doing who will share being among the very first uh, in that doctoral program. And that's, that's incredible. There's so many things about what you just said that, that are so relevant. The first thing is that the demographics of this group are unusual for a doctoral program. Mm -hmm. They are an average of 48 years old, which, by the way, is when I started my doctoral program. So I identify <laughs> and they have an average of 25 years work experience. So each person comes in having written, that's part of the acceptance, a statement of what they're expecting to do, what's their passion, what's the difference that they're going to make in the world. So it's very different than learning theory that the school or the curriculum or the teacher 
is in charge of. It's taking what you're interested in and giving you skills to be a thought leader. So the assumption is that you are a skilled practitioner and you're going to add skills of organizational development and change to your toolkit, so to speak, and in the process, explore something that you are truly passionate and committed to. And wow. that's a really exciting place to be. Very different than anything that registers in my memory about it. Uh, and, 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 and I'm thinking of all the thought now that we put into the nature of practice between Peter and me, you and others of whom I've had these conversations. And that is the, to me, that's the, the, the center pole on the big top is this, is this idea that one has that they want to lead thought. Now that's pretty bold. You think about it, but I don't think you lead thought unless you're leading from that that strong, strong feeling of intri intrigue, if you will, that I, I, I just got to know more about this. To me, that's the, the, I don't know, people probably don't even know what circuses are like anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember looking at that one in the middle of the big top and thinking, boy, that's holding up an awful lot. And, but an awful lot went along around it. And, and it organized. It was sort of a central organizing principle, if you will. So it sounds to me like this program is organized around the principle that the people are going to persist in a program of this nature, A, with others, those the other people in the, you know, in the ring with them, but B, because when they're done, they're going to feel, well, I think what you and I feel and keeps us going is like, what else can I say about this? What else can I write about this? Who's, who is thinking this way? And it used to be sort of in the peerage of people who publish a lot in, in the theoretical realm. And there are always a lot of interest in, and you convene those folks. So for organization development and learning, so you know what I mean. But to me, this could be even more rich because it would be people who are comfortable in reaching out to that sort of theoretical peerage and, and grooving and moving with them, but also, where are the other practitioners in the OD network or other places? Now I'm going to join, not just because I'm curious about a conference, but I want to be able to pick up, well, I can't pick up a phone anymore. I want to text some, <laughs> someone in Bolivia who I met online and see if they have the same thing going on in, in their practice as I'm having going on in mine. I think Steve Cady would be smiling at your summary of this. <laughs> and what he says to people is the goal of this program is for people to do what they want, when they want, with whom they want, and make a difference in the world. And it seems very obvious, but his mechanism that differentiates people who are going through the program is you have to get the information out there so that you can benefit while you sleep. That's his fourth element. And that, like that means you have to speak it and publish it. Yep. So Publishing does not necessarily, though that's a nice thing to aspire to in peer reviewed theoretical journals, 
it means getting the word out in all kinds of publications for other academics, for practitioners, and even in the popular press. So from day one, people who enter this program are encouraged to publish and they're given skills and support through the whole program to do that. Um, My sense is that this is very unique and it will have um, value for the field of higher ed. A little bit about this uh, and you. Uh, how has this experience of being in on very much the earliest stage and now um, wa- watching respectfully and with, I think, a lot of joy, this whole program develop over its bumps and grinds as well as its highs? Uh, what have you learned, Carol, about you as a an ethnographer <laughs> and as a human being, which I think is probably the same thing. <laughs> that That's a fabulous question. It's confirmed my understanding of myself hmm. and that my passion and my role is without any question to help individuals and groups of individuals grow through learning. And I, this is hard to to say and know that it's gonna go out into the ether, but I believe there's a role in cohort programs that is beyond the educator who grades. Mm-hmm. And that's as a connector and glue for the whole program. Mm -hmm. And though the administrators are invaluable, the person who recruits for this program is a graduate of the master's program in OD and has the same philosophy as the program. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Steve Cady, whose passion has made this happen. Um, But there is nobody except me who has actually interfaced with every student throughout the program and the administrators and the faculty. Well, it's uncannily different. I mean, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And that's been professionally an unbelievable joy of my career, my life. Mm -hmm. I believe some of it is my personality, obviously. But if doctoral programs, particularly, but all higher ed, recognize that there's a being part in um, assurance of learning that goes way beyond the grades and compliance, that the experience of higher ed would be much richer. Oh, I agree. Yay. (laughs) Yay and yay. I, a couple of times in my career, I've had that chance to be more than the, you know, the teacher on the, on the platform and so forth. And, uh, and continuity, uh, we have this program that Travelers funded, uh, which we start with uh, looking to bring people from underrepresented populations into uh, higher ed through the high school or junior highs or middle schools. So I was proud of that. And then, and then we have some who would come and for, 
for four years or two years if they went to the community colleges first. So I had continuity from some of those folks who appeared on our podcast, by the way, as uh, as when they were just vaguely interested in getting any kind of degree uh, to now well into their careers in insurance or related fields and very capable, huge transformation. And so it was so gratifying to have more than just, oh, his, his 15 weeks with me, see ya, with that group and on and on. I, and but when you're talking about what it takes to stick with a doctoral program for several years or more, the, what I'm reading about that is that there's, there's a terrifically scary attrition rate, even if they're highly selected it, in all of all different types, because it's expensive and it's time consuming and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think and partly, lonely, which I is think, what you said a while ago. But, but yeah, but I think it, it, it is. And, and he, what our societies are looking for, you've been involved from ground floor with organization development societies, I with organization behavior and all that. We're looking for coherence and cohesiveness and, and that wonderful feeling of familiarity, community. And uh, I, I think that when we bring doctoral people in for our doctoral institutes for the uh, Org Behavior Teaching Conference, for example, they just seem really, really relieved to be able to get together with people who have common cause, even if they don't work together. But you get them together uh, for, in these wonderful ways for several years. Could we, as we're wrapping down on time, could we pinpoint the experience of, you don't have to give the name, full names, but let's say one person who's kind of made the journey in that first cohort and working on a dissertation right now. Uh, how has life been for her or him through that time? I will tell you my favorite poster child story. Okay. We have a person in the cohort who's very accomplished and his basic um, work has been in marketing. He's been a consultant in large not-for-profits whose names you would know and small, mostly not-for-profits. He didn't go to school the traditional way and in the last 10 years has completed a bachelor's and master's and entered this program because he's been teaching in universities and needed a terminal degree. And that's the motivation for several of the students that they want to teach um, and they need a, a degree. So we had an orientation. So he came very intentional, very um, instrumentally motivated. Mm -hmm. And the very first residency was a day of orientation where people got to know each other. And they brought artifacts about um, that were meaningful to them about their lives. And we did a debrief afterwards. And he said publicly, as I was leaving my house, my wife said, are you going to make new friends? And he said to his wife, 
no, I have enough friends. My purpose is to get this degree and to learn. <laughs> and at the closing of the first residency, and when he went back to his wife, he said, I just met 15 people who I think are going to be my friends for life. Wow. And wow. He is now one of the first of seven people who have defended their dissertation proposal, seven out of 13 mm -hmm. in the third year of the program. It's designed as a three-year program. Mm -hmm. What you referred to before of people not finishing, I've been told that 53% of people who start doctoral programs become ABD, all but dissertation, don't finish. That's right. Um, so that story by itself is evidence for me of the value of the cohort and the structures that have been put in place and the sense of being in a collaborative environment. Indeed, I think from, again, generally my experience with, um, with you and the Nexus, uh, Nexus for Change and however you've uh, identified yourselves in my last couple of years experience with you, collaboration has been the word, isn't it? I mean, everything else seems to stem from yes. collaboration. And that's not easy. It's a lovely word. But doing it day in and day out, particularly as, you know, you're in California and there and, and everyone's around and members of your cohort may be dispersed. It, it takes a different uh, level of uh, uh, humility in some ways to, to, to collaborate with others because you can get impatient and say, oh, well, I'll just do it myself or I'll figure it out for myself. And, and pretty soon the, those, li those little wonderful tendrils of relationships just don't get reinforced. Yet you believe in collaboration and so do I because I think that's basically how the best things get done. So as we're capping this off, Carol, what what is your? I've given you my yakety yak about collaboration. What what's your view of it now that you've been doing it for so long and writing about it and teaching about it? Well, I have to go back to where I started. Okay. I wanted a terminal degree, as these students do. I had twenty five years in corporate and IT. I had implemented. Lotus Notes as a beta site to help people communicate, coordinate, and collaborate in an investment bank. And the real reason was to collaborate, to bring the culture together. Right. And after we implemented Lotus Notes to do this, there was no data in the fancy Rolodex that we had developed. And when I asked the bankers why, they said, I want the other banker's client information, but I'm not giving mine. That's <laughs> my, <laughs> my, yeah. my intellectual capital. Yeah. And that has driven me the rest of my life and career. And so my dissertation topic was how does a virtual project team contribute to organizational learning and what's the role of collaborative technology? 
And my dissertation committee was very reluctant for me to do anything on collaboration because there was no business literature on collaboration. I was going to have to go back in history into the liberal arts. Isn't that incredible? And that was in the mid-90s. Yeah, yeah. And now collaboration is a buzzword. And I think that's my final word. Collaboration is not just people being in the same room at the same time. Collaboration is a process. And it's really connected to who you and Peter Vale are in terms of collaboration means learning. And boy, did we, when Peter and I worked through this, right up to our very last conversation, his excitement was, hey, Dave, we're learning a lot about practice. And he said, uh, it's just dawned on me, Dave, our practice is practice. <laughs> and, and I would say <laughs> our practice is practice in collaboration. There we go. We brought you in, Carol, and um, I'm really grateful for the chance to get an update on on what you've been doing. And 3.0 will be in the in the calendar very soon because there's it's, so much to learn from you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to anactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to anactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.